Hello, and welcome to Cecil's Unknown Achievers. This podcast is all about hardworking entrepreneurs you've never heard of. This is the very first episode, and I'm pleased that I get to talk to an entrepreneur that I've personally known for years. He's a great guy with a great story. His name's Rico Bertoletti, and he's the owner of Rico's Repair Service. So let's get right into it. Welcome, Rico. Thank you, Cecil. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to do this. I think it uh, may be beneficial for a lot of people. Yeah, I'm hoping so, man. I'm um, like, like I was telling you before, when I had this idea to do this podcast years ago, I finally got off my butt and uh, actually did it. You were the guy that I was thinking of because your story, and there's probably some that I don't, some of the story that I don't know, but I know, I know a good bit of it you know, how you started out and where you are today, I'm, I'm very impressed, man. And if I haven't told you that before, I, I am very impressed with what you've done. Yeah, me too. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you are the first guest of Cecil's Unknown Achievers. How does it feel, man? Do, do you feel special? Yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, I was excited <laughs> to do this, and uh, I was. That, that, that is a, it's a nice compliment, you know. There's a lot of firsts going around when you start up a business. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's get right into it. Uh, Rico's Repair, give us, uh, just tell us what you do. What's, what's, what's it all about? Uh, okay, so back in the 90s, high school, fixing machines was always a passion for me, and that uh, progressed Crest went through life, lost my job because the little gas station I was working at closed. And uh, I went to becoming a systems technician. Uh, so the majority of my life, I've been, I've have an electrical background. And so cameras, burglar alarms, fire alarms, et cetera. Um, that uh, is what I did for the majority of my career all the way up until I was about 43 or 44 years old. I was always content to work for somebody else. It was a very simple life. I got to be at all of my children's games. Um, they had big, you know, young children participating in their life were more important to me than owning a business. Uh, but a point came where uh, there was no longer enough work. Uh, I was getting, you know, 20 hours a week, maybe 25 hours a week. And the, my children got older. They all started getting it into the age of going into college. And I'd never set up. I always lived check to check, week to week all my life. And came time to provide a way to get them into college and pay for it. Uh, fortunately, at that time, my business, my hobby, uh, started turning into a business. And I could see a little bit more money was flowing in working for myself versus working for somebody else. Uh, not a big difference at the time when you, I think when you first start up a business, you don't know how to bill, you don't know what you're worth, you don't know what to charge. Uh, so it just became more hours. And it took a while to translate that into actually making money and making this worth my time. So let me, let me interrupt you for just a moment. So Rico's repair service really started out as a, a, a hobby of yours what what was your actual job when when you started doing this on the side? Uh, I installed uh, mainly security systems and camera systems, 
fire alarm systems. Uh, by that point of being 25 years into my career, I was working more of the commercial side and I was very good at what I did. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the very few people that were able to do some of the things that I do. So systems technician was what I did for 25 years. Okay. And then what you, you sound like you, and I, what I've known about you is you, you've always been a handy guy. Like you've been, like you said, electronics were your thing. What, what other kinds of things were you doing that, or how did you come to be so handy and knowing how to fix things? Uh, I would take a lot of it from the way that I was brought up my childhood, uh, living, you know, kind of grew up poor. And when things had to get repaired, you had to do them yourself. There wasn't uh, the money or the option to bring it to somebody else to get repaired. So it was out of necessity <laughs> that you kind of learn how to do these things. Yeah, necessity. And my uncle, uh, who's passed, was a senior scientist for Abbott Labs. Uh, I was not a very good kid, and I had to spend a summer with him. And <laughs> <laughs> that was probably the best summer that I ever spent, because that's when I learned the difference between diodes, rectifiers, transformers, half-bridge rectifier, full-bridge rectifier, uh, I, I learned quite a bit in that one summer when I was 12 years old. So you're speaking Greek to me already, man. <laughs> that was, uh, that's, that, that knowledge, uh, never left me. It always stayed with me. Uh, so necessity out of, um, having to do things for yourself because you couldn't afford to pay somebody else to do it. Uh, combined with having a great uncle who put a lot of knowledge into me. And then when I got into the high school years, I've got to give a lot of credit to the high school. Um, back then, vocational programs were huge. And they were, I've always known from a young age that I was going to go into the trades. So I was able to take metal, electric, uh, autos, autos too, that I uh, quickly progressed through and they had a, a program called Sauk. Um, I went to Hillcrest High School and Sauk was a vocational school for kids that were beyond just basic uh, mechanics, beyond mm -hmm. uh, uh, beyond small engines. And at Sauk, that was, I would leave at about 12 o'clock. That was a three hour course. And that was one class, three hours long. And I learned uh, so much about engines at that point. We actually rebuilt engines in that program. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, now, when I, I've worked in several high schools doing the systems technician at cameras and burglar alarms, uh, the classroom, so every school has its own uh, ability, but the schools do not have, from what I've seen, the ability of what they did 20 years ago, you know, 30 years ago when I was in high school. Um, they used to kind of guide you. And if you were going to go into the trades, hey, you could take woods, metals, autos, everything was there. Um, not so sure about how school is now. It's been 30 years since I, I've been out of high school. But again, that was a lot of uh, knowledge that I retained that helped me later in life. And that that's good stuff, man, because I I remember in high school, the they they had programs like that, but they weren't really the kids who went into those programs were were kids who didn't necessarily uh, jive with 
the traditional classroom learning. And it, it, it's something that I think, and I don't know, maybe it's going on now. I, I just don't know, but that they should expose a lot of all kids to, you know, how to change your oil, how to do basic stuff on a car. You know, I was fortunate that I, I had guys around me that knew how to do that stuff. And, you know, I just kind of learned that way, how to put together things, how to fix things, you know, but I, I'm by no means at your level, but I know how to do some basic stuff. But well, you, I, you I also, think it's important to, to keep teaching that kind of stuff. You also make a lot of connections in those <laughs> groups. When you start advancing, let's say that you had taken a small engine class in high school and uh, that was, you were passionate about it and you advanced quickly through the system as I did, you start meeting like-minded people that are also interested in mechanical. And then it turns into going to a friend's house and doing a brake job or pulling an engine out, or you start, uh, you're hanging around with people. You make friends of, with people that have a like mind issue and you guys, you begin to learn off each other. And eventually somebody's dad was a master mechanic somewhere that comes in and guides you. It's the basics of uh, networking, <laughs> connecting with folks who are kind of heading in the same direction that you are. Yeah, before cell phones and um, before, yeah, and then great neighbors <laughs> too. I had a guy, Alan Johnson, uh, that lived uh, walking distance from my house. And uh, he wasn't a formally trained mechanic, but God, there wasn't anything that guy didn't know. And uh, there's some things that you can learn from school and there's some things that you have to learn through experience. So he was, as I was learning in school, the technical end of things, he was the guy that knew how to get a rusted bolt out, how to extract a broken bolt. How to, he had the experience and I had, I was getting the book knowledge. Well, that's great, man. So we went back to, you know, when it, it started out, it was kind of a hobby or systems engineer. How did it start into you fixing small engines? What, and, and what, tell me, I, I want to get into too, what, how, what's a small engine and, you know, how big will you go as far as uh, what you'll, what you'll take in your shop? So tell, tell, tell us about what, how, how did it develop uh, into, you know, you doing stuff on the side of your house like I remember you used to? Sure. Yeah. That's uh, starting with friend, friends and neighbors, um, the lack of work. Uh, when we had that recession, things slowed down, wasn't getting 40 hours, uh, you know, with the kids coming into college, knowing I had to find another way. So it kind of started as a hobby and honestly helping a lot of my friends and neighbors. There was just an incredible need for it. Um, was one of those that you helped? <laughs> yeah, well, the more people I helped uh, and I didn't charge a lot, I remember doing your generator. And I spent probably three hours on that generator, cleaned it all up, went through from A to Z, and I might have charged you $40 less than I made at work. A bargain. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, uh, that, that's the, to take that and to learn how to make money from it was probably the biggest challenge. But um, starting out was just helping friends, family, neighbors. Uh, the biggest turning point would have came when I met an older guy, his name was Norton, and he had been in the business for 30 years. So I was so overwhelmed, I still had my full-time job, uh, met, met him from a place that was closing. 
And it was a good will gesture. He was telling me, you know, hey, I'm losing my job. This place is closing. And I explained to him, I said, hey, I'm tired of working until two o'clock in the morning. Uh, you're more than welcome to come to my house, knock out some of these repairs. We'll split the difference in the profit. And it was him being in the business for 30 years that really changed the way that it looked at things. And it went from $30 lawnmowers to $100 lawnmowers immediately. And now it became worth my time to sit in that garage and work all night because I was actually making money at it. So that was your, your kind of light bulb moment where you, you kind of thought, wow, I, I can actually make some dough doing this. Yeah. When the, the old man was telling me, you know, Hey, this is, you gotta be charging $150 for this. And as it learned, you're crazy. Nobody's ever going to pay a hundred dollars to get their lawnmower fixed. And uh, sure enough, everybody did. And now it became worth my time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> So now it became worth it. And the hobby started, I would say at that point started transitioning to a business. Um, and I was doing so much. Uh, there, there was, just an incredible need for it. And it was, it, it got beyond neighbors and people started telling other people, started telling other people, uh, before I knew it, I was out of room in my garage. And so I started. Yeah. So, so tell me about that. I remember when I'd come by your place and, you know, first you had stuff, you know, in the garage and then I think you built a little structure kind of on the side. Yeah, I did. The, the city didn't like that much. Yeah, yeah, they did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they My, uh, so the as it, as it progressed and grew, storage in this business is always an issue or always a problem. Not everybody can pick up their machine the next day. You know, right. sometimes you're going to sit on them four, five, six, seven days. People get busy. Um, so the amount of machines that were coming in and that I had to store started growing so I put up a tent I got from Harbor Freight. I think I paid $150 for it with my 20% off coupon. <laughs> and the city didn't like that very much. So they came through, wrote me a couple of tickets, warned me. Um, and then at that point, I said, well, let me go to the city and tell them what I'm doing. Uh, went before the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I believe that was the, the I had filed for a home-based business permit. Um, and they, upon doing that, they sent a letter out to all of my neighbors within, I believe it was 500 feet of where I lived. And there was a hearing for me to be able to get a home-based business permit. And, uh, it was then that I didn't really understand what I was doing to my neighbors at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, the objections were, I believe everybody within that radius of me objected to what I was doing. Um, now I would keep in mind, I'm out there sharpening lawnmower blades at one o'clock in the morning. I mean, that's, that's not quiet, is it? No, it's not quiet. It's very (laughs) disruptive. It's not something that should have been done in a neighborhood. Uh, my original stance, I was very upset about it. You know, I said, Hey, what, why, why are my neighbors trying to kill my, my, uh, my side job here, my hustle. I didn't see it from their point of view that, you know, Hey, you're out here till one, two o'clock in the morning, making all this noise. We've got, at that point, landscapers started dropping off machines, and they come with big trucks and big trailers, mm-hmm. and it blocks up the street. People can't get in and out of their driveways. It, it had just, it had grown to a point that um, the home, ba- working out of my house and keeping it a hobby was, it was, just wasn't an option. So anymore. you were, you were a little stressed there. 
then to alleviate that, you found a space and, and that's not where you are now. This is your, where you're at now is your second spot, isn't it? Or is that correct? Uh, well, I have multiple, we're in a type of industrial strip. I started out with what I consider, these are hatcheries, they're 1500 square foot buildings. Um, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about that story, the transition from the, the town saying, no, you can't do this. The neighbor saying, no, you can't do this. And then I had to make, that forced me to make a decision to, at this point, the, uh, the Norton had been involved where we raised the prices. This was worth doing. I seen a future in it, yet I could no longer do it out of my house. So I had to make the decision <clears throat> to uh, get a space, get, to get a shop. And that decision came with uh, almost a divorce with my wife. <laughs> it did not go over very good. I remember her words. She says, wait a minute. You want to not only quit your job, you want to add a second mortgage and you don't know how much money you make. Hey, you got to trust me. You got to trust me. And again, I'm seeing things from only my side of the, uh, the uh, of the, my, my point of view for things. Right. So at, that, at that point, I had no idea if I was, there was no, I wasn't keeping books, records, anything of that nature. Uh, I didn't know if I was making money. Um, I knew I was eating a little bit better than I was before I could treat her to go out to dinner. And this whole week to week paycheck thing started dissolving. Now, all of a sudden I started having to keep, you know, four or $500 in the bank in case I needed a starter or a part, or I, you know, you couldn't, you can't operate a business on no money. So um, it was a huge transition, a huge problem with me and the wife in the beginning. Uh, I took a side where like, you know, Hey, you don't believe in me. And uh, ultimately, I just did what I felt I had to do, and it worked out, um, but it was a big risk. Well, anybody who, and I mean, you could ask any entrepreneur, there's always a point where they've got to take a risk, and you don't know what the future is going to hold. You, you can't, you've got a vision, but it's, it's not 100% clear, but you, you've got it in your heart, and you believe in what you're doing. And it's a little scary. So when you do make that leap, you're, you're, you're thinking about all the naysayers, all the, all the reasons why it, it won't work. But you really got to focus on, and what you did, is focus on why it will work and what's working and then keep pushing and, and doing that. Yeah, so, you, you have to take the leap of faith. There's no way... I don't believe anybody has ever started a business without money, living check to check, without having to make a decision and take the jump, take the plunge, do it. Now, for me, I'm in a different position than most people in life. My wife is a nurse. She makes good money and she carries all the benefits. So I was not walking away from a pension, a 401k plan, health benefits for the children, um, I was just simply risking our own personal, uh, the ability for me to earn and bring in money. Um, with that said, I always know I always knew I could earn. There was no way that I could not earn money. There's nothing I can't fix in your house, on your car, on your lawnmower. So that gave me the confidence, you know, the, the past and the background that I had, that uh, I'll always be able to earn money. And, and that's, you know, you and I are alike in that, that respect, because I've, 
I've taken risks in doing, you know, what I'm doing, but I've, I've always known, and not, not that I, I think, what if I fail, you know, I could always do this, but I always know that I can go out and earn, you know, there's, there's things that I can do. You know, I, I used to drive Uber and, and, you know, I, I, I didn't love that, but I, I did it because that was a, it was a season and I had to earn and that, that's what I did. You know, I've, uh, I've, I painted, you know, I've done a little bit of landscaping, helping guys out that I know who had landscaping businesses, you know, but I, I, I've never been afraid of hard work and that I, I know that's what you're about. You know, you're not afraid to work. And that's one of the things about an entrepreneur is that they are not afraid of hard work and they're not afraid to take risks as, as we just mentioned as well. Yeah. 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 So, well, I, I don't believe most people are afraid of working hard, working long hours. Um, you know, it, it's a matter of taking the jump and having the confidence in yourself that you can earn, that you can still provide for your family. That sure. you can still, it would have been a more difficult jump had I been the, the benefit provider um, for the, you know, having children on the medical insurance. And at that point, I think it would have really, I, in my particular situation, I, I think that would have almost broke me. I don't know what would have happened, um, but I know that I would have had to been able to pay for those benefits for the health and for the health care and the insurance and then quit my job and take on another shop. That would have been a more difficult decision. One I still think I would have made um, as much as the risk is increased. I felt so confident in what I was doing that uh, I think I would have still done it anyways, but it would have made the decision longer. Sure. Well, thankfully it, it worked out. Uh, your business is, success, is successful. Uh, it didn't break your marriage apart. No, no we're still here. <laughs> <laughs> it probably strengthened it even, even more. So that's, that's great news, man. So you're, you're in your place now. You've, uh, you've, you've got things rolling along. You've got additional space. You're out of your, your home and working out of your garage and, and, uh, you know, pissing off your neighbors. Right. (laughs) Tell me as, as things are moving along right now, what sort of growing pains are you having? Because it seemed like it was almost overnight that you got to where you are right now. I know that's not, what happened, but I know when you, when businesses grow that quickly, there's, there's some challenges that come up and tell, tell us about maybe some of the pains or growing pains that, that you've had since you are now running along at full steam in the place that you're at now. Uh, growing, the, the growing pains, the most painful part of it, I would say is not having a process for what you do. Um, I was very fortunate. The reason that the growth has developed the way that it has within the last year or two, I'll attribute a lot of it to a a program that I'm a Cub Cadet dealer and Cub Cadet pays for this program. It's called the Clemens program. And it's sort of like Marcus Lamone does in The Profit. Um, They're very involved in outdoor power industry. And they came in and they gave us a process. And they said, this is how you do this. And everything was written out, and it changed the way that I did business, and um, it, it's been nothing but good from it. 
before having a process, we did not have a set way that we did anything. It was just, we dealt with that day, that day, a day at a time. And that makes it very difficult to grow a business when you don't know how you're going to do what you're going to do. So um, I, I would say the most painful part was probably in the beginning, establishing pay for the employees, what they're worth. These are all my friends that are working for me from high school. Um, they're the majority of them are. So and, how many how many people are working for you right now? Uh, there's currently seven. If I include myself, I am an employee of the company. Uh, seven. There's seven people. Um, me, my son, I have three mechanics, a driver, a manager, and now recently, uh, because of COVID-19, I turned my systems technician into my service manager. So these these are all folks that you've known before, or were any of these people like that you placed an ad, interviewed them, and or they were all connections of yours beforehand? Uh, Jason, my lead mechanic, was somebody that I went through high school with, so I knew him, and it was kind of a cool story. He needed a lawnmower, and I had one. He couldn't afford it. So I said, hey, Jason, tell you what, take the lawnmower. You come in here and you help me out on the weekends. I'm getting buried here, you know, and you'll pay it off over, you know, uh, I, we didn't really set uh, how many weekends he had to work for me. So we started coming down to the shop every Saturday. And uh, then I told him at one point, hey, the lawnmower's paid off. You know, I have to come in no more. And he continued to come in. Um, so now I have to, <laughs> now, now, you I gotta, yeah, now I got to pay him. If you're going to keep coming in, I'm going to have to pay him. Uh, so he continued to come in and then he had lost his job. He was in the gun business, uh, worked at gun stores all his life and they fired him. And I said, well, Hey, uh, you know, I, I have like 40 machines that need to be done. So why don't we just jump into this? And I think I started Jason at $10 an hour. Um, I don't want to say what he's currently at, but he's uh, very well paid. He's not making $10 an hour anymore. And, um, th that's how I met th that he's been with me the longest. Uh, my next employee again was a goodwill thing. Jen, who's currently my manager. She used to work at the gas station down the road from us and the, he had sold the gas station. So I knew the fellow that sold the gas station. His name was Wook. And uh, he came in with uh, Jen and told me, yep, I'm out. I sold the gas station. And I said, well, Jen, what are you doing for work as the phone keeps ringing? And uh, she said, well, you know, I'm out of work. I said, well, why don't you come in a, a day or two a week? And uh, I've got a lot of things that I need to catch up on. I could use some help. Well, she turned out to be like the shining light. Um, she's absolutely taken over this place. She's the face of my business now and i believe she also started at ten dollars an hour and again i won't say what she's making now but she's uh able to make a, a very good living for herself so tell me rico how, do, how does that make you feel as an owner of a business knowing that there are people who are essentially depending on that business your business for their livelihood that gets scary that's very scary we're a seasonal business, and now my payroll is $3,500 a week. Uh, that's scary, because without work, 
um, they, you know, I've started laying people off and it will be in the order that, you know, that they were brought on board. Um, so that's always scary because I know I have, you know, um, I, I know Jen has two children. I know Josio, another one of my mechanics has two children. And so I, I know there's a lot riding on the business to be successful. And there's a lot of children writing on this business to be successful. I'm, I'm not where I want to be, but I do have a comfort zone in how much money is in the bank because I know I can continue to provide them with uh, a salary, whether money is coming in this building or not. Uh, it wouldn't be for very long, but uh, I, I do have enough to at least keep them going for, you know, uh, maybe two or three weeks, about a month. Uh, that's the way I've planned things. I've been very lucky through COVID-19 that my business has benefited from it. Um, but should uh, should it have affected us, we were a restaurant or a gym or one of the other businesses that had to quit operating. Uh, I would have about 30 days and everybody would have to fend for themselves. And then I feel like at that point, trying to get the employees back would be almost impossible. So, you know, outside of the challenge, obviously, in the you, you mentioned it's it's scary knowing that those folks are are depending on you for their livelihood. It's it's still probably got to make you feel good that you're able to to help folks out because there were the the two stories that you shared were of people who didn't have any any uh, income, didn't have a job, but you were able to provide that for them. So that that's that's got to make you feel good too. It does. I, it, there's a wash between make you feel good and worried about keeping them with work. Um, owning your own business is, uh, I wouldn't say extremely stressful, but there is a lot on your plate. I, I should, one day I will take the time to sit back and say, wow, look what I built. But that time just <laughs> never seems to come. It, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I worry about how do they get paid tomorrow? How, how do I move this forward? How do I get everybody that works for me to make more money? Um, me personally, I don't pull a salary out of this business. I pay my, I, I just take what I need to pay my personal bills and I don't do extravagant vacations. I don't, I reinvest. I bought a forklift. I bought a lift. I, I just constantly reinvest back into the business. So I'm not pulling a lot out of it. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I, I've never had that moment where I step back and say, wow, what the, this is great. Look at all these people I employ. I, I'm still struggling with the moment of, oh my God, if no work comes in, what do we do? Well, I, I don't think that's uh, uncommon for, for folks who start businesses like, like you have. There, there's that fine line between standing back and admiring what you have and also worrying about keeping what you have. So yeah, time. I, believe, I believe a lot of that may came, may come from my background. I've worked for somebody else all my life. I look at everything from the employee perspective because essentially that's what I've done all my life. I wasn't given a business. I didn't earn start a business at a young age. I, you know, 44 years old before I came into owning my own business and being that I've worked for now that gives me a, a, an advantage. Nobody else will have. Also, that I know how to treat people because I have been the employee all my life. Now, all of a sudden, I'm the boss. And uh, but knowing how to treat people um, is huge. I, I'm 100% employee retention. Um, I've had to fire two people so far 
but other than that, how, how was that? Fun. That wasn't fun, was it? No, it sure was not. The first time I had to fire somebody, uh, I'm a very passive person, and I did not want to do it. Um, but it's what had to be done, and I had thought about it for uh, over many drinks and two, three days in a row, and I had planned it all out, what I was going to tell them, how I was going to fire them. And uh, none of that actually happened. I came in and told him why he had to get the hell out of my shop. And uh, that was a, a, about the end of it. It was stressful. The first person I fired, the second person got a little bit better, but I still do not. I will never like firing somebody. Uh, but sometimes in business, you do what you have to do. Well, it's, it's not real, I guess, as a boss until you have to actually fire somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that a lot of that, uh, the, the first person I fired came from the reason that he was fired is because I didn't know what his background was until we got into a payroll service. And the payroll service actually, you know, we were cash business in the beginning. And the payroll service actually reached back out to me and told me who was working for me. And that's why I had to let him go. Um, so that was like, wow, an eye opener to really run a background check on people before they start working sure. for you. So, uh, you know, from that unpleasantness to the current unpleasantness, you touched on the, the COVID-19 and, you know, how it's affecting like the, the, uh, service businesses like restaurants and, and gyms, you know, my gym has been closed. So I've been managing, uh, workouts here with my son and my daughter just inventing stuff to do but how how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected your business if if it's affected it at all well I it's very difficult to say being a new business um, I know there will always be growth when you start a business um, and I don't know if the growth that I'm seeing is because of COVID-19 or if it's because I'm establishing my business. Uh, the COVID-19, we're in the outdoor power equipment industry and people are now, they're home and they want to take care of their own house. And to take care of their own house, they now need a lawnmower and a weed whacker and a rototiller. Um, so sales have gone absolutely through the roof. But I don't know if those sales are coming from uh, the fact that people are now home needing equipment to care for their own houses, or if the sales have just simply come from me coming into my second year with a dealership, my name getting out there, the advertising starting to take. So that'll be a very difficult decision when I go to make my preseason order for next year, because I have to figure out was my growth from COVID-19 being in this business or was my growth uh, simply because my name is getting out there and the, and the business is growing. Yeah. Forecasting is, is uh, it's tough. You work at it and you don't always get it right. You know, stuff that happens in the past doesn't always repeat itself in the future. The skill you have in that is, is probably going to be something that develops over time. It's going to be tough to nail it down exactly, but it's probably a, a combination of both those things that you were mentioning. But, yeah, and it goes, uh, you know, as, as we go back through this, uh, the interview, I think was really good to me because I now have a thought in my head about starting out of the garage of my house, the risk I took, 
to to get a shop and to quit my job uh, versus now I have to take more risks because I don't have solid numbers going into next year. How big of a preseason order I place? Um, kind of thinking back to the way I started this business, I'm I'm going to have to take a gamble and go a little bit bigger than I think I need. And you know, it's interesting you say that because a lot of people want to pull back the reins and not spend because of the uncertainty of the economy due to the, the uh, coronavirus. And historically, though, the businesses that spend, you know, you got to be smart about it, but are willing to continually invest in their businesses and invest in your education, whatever it is, when this is over and it's just a season, it will be over one day. You'll be ahead of the game over the folks who kind of cowered and, and waited. Yes. Yep. Uh, definitely. The name of it, it, as far as sales go, sales are, uh, we don't get a big profit margin on sales. That's not what drives the business. It's the service. Um, but as far as taking a risk goes, yes. If I'm, if I'm willing to take a big risk in overstock on inventory, potentially overstock on inventory, the next person that didn't, um, my sales will go up and theirs will go down. So risk reward is always part of, I think, any business. Sure. So, so let's, let's go into a little, little more detail about what you do. I know some of the things that you repair, obviously lawnmowers and, you know, small engines. What, what won't you do? I mean, how, I know you do a large, uh, uh, landscape companies and people who do lawn services who have big machines, but what, what are some of the things that you just kind of don't do or maybe well, we, 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 tr- we try to stay away from large machines. Um, we're not a bit, a very big facility and large machines, although they have the, we have a set labor rate and I'm not going to charge you any different if you brought a caterpillar in here or a front end loader in here to repair it than it would if you brought your residential lawnmower in here. The only difference will be that your Caterpillar will take me six times longer to get parts for. It will occupy 10 times more space than residential lawnmowers. So we're not equipped. Uh, I do not want the large machines, although I can repair them. um, It's not something that I want here and I want to have to store. So the largest machine, and we do work on the front end loaders for District 227. They have some large machines. And the only reason that I'm willing to work on and repair those is that I simply won't let them go to another dealer. Uh, They, when something breaks, I want them calling me. I don't want to defer them to, oh, uh, call this guy or that guy. That those bigger commercial it's school accounts. You have to be the everything guy. So for those customers, we'll take the larger machines in. Um, but for the average person, a large, like a uh, a 2,000 pound, 72 inch deck uh, lawn cutting machine is about as big as we're going to get. So now if you have uh, districts or, or school districts, park districts, big entities like that, is is that a 
is that a big chunk of your business? Are are you actively going after that? Um, I would love to get more townships, more uh, more park uh, park districts, municipalities. Uh, would it, it's a steadier business because obviously um, they they have bigger equipment because they're covering more land. Yeah, they have bigger equipment. It's better maintained. They'll follow the, our fleet management program that we run. Um, for example, uh, uh, 227, I had mentioned them earlier. Um, that's a school district that bought three very large machines from me. And school districts do not lack maintenance. They want everything taken care of, and they want to get the best out of their equipment. So we run a program with them where we stock them with all the parts that they need for their machine. And we, we will come by once a month to check on the inventory. Whatever inventory they've used, we bill them for. But their maintenance has the ability to repair their machines because we've provided them with parts for it. Obviously, those folks are probably a little easier to deal with than the average Joe coming in with his lawnmower. So what are, for the folks like me who, you know, have lawnmowers, snowblowers, what are some mistakes those people make uh, taking the, care of their stuff? The, the, the biggest 90, 80% of our business comes from people leaving gas in their machines. Um, as a matter of fact, Cecil, that's why your generator is in my shop right now. You left uh, that's gas correct. Um, so you're not alone in that. Repairing that is very profitable for us. Although we give you the education and we give all our customers the education on how to prevent that from happening, it's always going to be part of the business. Leaving fuel inside of a machine is the majority of uh, smaller repairs. Sure, sure. Uh, we're talking about the districts and the larger places that are, are bringing you relatively well-maintained things. The, the part of your business that's individuals bringing in machines that aren't as well-maintained is, is probably a, a challenge for for you, but again, it's business. And that's probably, like you said, a, a, the, the bulk of your business. Yeah. You, you have two groups of people. Um, the first group of people, which would be like A-list customers, they're going to have their machines maintained every year. And a machine that should have an average life expectancy of say five to seven years now goes to 15 to 20 years. So they're not, their equipment doesn't fail through the season when they need it. Um, they don't have to purchase new equipment because they're having it maintained every year. Uh, the second group brings it in when it's broke and uh, they bring it in and, it, and equipment breaks during the busy season. Um, they bring it in and it needs to be repaired. And uh, that's the, really the bulk of our business. Majority of it is from gas. Um, that's early in the season. And then later in the year, you have people that, uh, you know, just make mistakes with the machinery and um, it needs to, or belts break wear and tire items. If you don't do the preventative maintenance on a machine, there's a really good chance that I'll see you during the year when it breaks. Mm -hmm. If you do the preventative maintenance, you don't have the downtime or the failure rate. I have uh, five landscapers that I deal with. And although they don't always have the funds available to do all the preventative maintenance, um, if they don't do it, they will experience downtime through the year. If they do do the preventative maintenance, they'll have a smooth, easy sailing gear. Okay, sure. Makes sense. 
So with, with all that you have going on, obviously, I'm sure you're pouring a lot of hours into the business. How are you balancing your time with your personal kickback, relaxed time, family time? How, how, is, how is that going? Uh, my, my children are a little older now. I get one day off Sunday. Um, the rest of my time, I don't really have time off when I'm home. Uh, I, I don't relax. I think about the business, how to improve <laughs> it, I, what I can do the next day. Uh, I, I do try to set aside watching football, but all the other sports are gone. There's no time to enjoy. Uh, if there's no, I don't watch TV anymore. I don't read the newspapers. I don't. I focus on marketing. I focus on what's going on in the business. So uh, there's not a lot of time off mentally. Like physically, I'm not at this location, but mentally, I am still here. Uh, Sunday, I do my best to just turn my phone off, absolutely forget what happened during the week, and do nothing. Um, but that doesn't always happen. So there, there's really not a balance. I think once you once you start running a business, your mind's always going to be on it. There's there's just simply no turning it off. Well, it, it's tough. I I know uh, personally, and I you know I've talked to a lot of other people. It's 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 a it's quite a challenge. Like you said, you may physically not be there, but mentally, you are always thinking about it. Yeah, and and if you're willing to mentally turn off and to walk away from your business. I, I don't know how much success you're going to have. Um, I think a lot of my success comes from 24 seven, the business being on my mind. And uh, I, I come into work the next morning with uh, seven people working for me in a new set of decisions. And this is how we're going to do this better today. This is what we're going to change about what we did yesterday. So if you're not willing to make, you know, put the time in, um, I don't know in my particular business, how successful you'd be. Sure. Well, hopefully as time goes by and you grow that you'll, you'll be able to do like, like we discussed earlier, a little uh, standing back and admiring what you built <laughs> to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah. yeah, maybe <laughs> one day. I do get that in the slower seasons and I've got a great man- manager, Jen. Um, I can, if I wanted to, I could walk away from this for a week and she could just run everything. Um, but I don't want to. So, <laughs> still so, they, so the ability to do it, sir, I just don't do it. So, so as we uh, close out here and uh, definitely appreciate you, man, obviously everybody has competitors. What is the one thing or a couple things that, that really separates Rico's repair service from other places that do what you do? A quality. Um, it being very important to me, the employees, everybody, we, we have some things in place that, uh, you know, um, you're going to lose a couple of bucks if you do not repair things correctly. Uh, but quality being job one, uh, when you bring even an average lawnmower into us, it gets checked two times and tested before it leaves to go back to the customer. We've had a great year this year. I think we've had three or four machines uh, believe we've done over 1800 machines this year and three or four of them were not repaired correctly throughout the year. So quality is why people come here and deal with me. We have people that come from uh, a couple people from Michigan, uh, a lot of the neighboring and surrounding towns, and they come here because they want to fix right the first time. So if quality is job one and 
the processes in place to ensure that that quality is there. Uh, I believe that's what makes the, con the business continue to grow. Well, awesome, man. Um, anything else folks should know about, about you personally or the business, anything? Uh, just a, a, a side note of, I believe if you're good to people, if you treat people fair and you're honest in your business, I believe it's going to grow. We, we may all dip into that point where we're not very profitable and we're not making a lot of money and there's a cheaper way that you can do things. If you take that road, you're probably not going to have success. Uh, but if you continue to treat people right, be very honest and very fair, cheating nobody out of anything and explaining it, I believe you'll have success. Good words to live by, man. Well, I want to thank Rico Bertoletti for being the first guest on Cecil's Unknown Achievers. Uh, this was the very first podcast I've ever done and you are the first guest. So I appreciate you. And I wasn't just blowing smoke earlier, man. I, I do admire you. And I uh, thankful that I got to see your growth from when you started out to where you are now. And I know uh, big things are, are still coming for you. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate you be uh, me being the first interview for you. Too. Absolutely. That's really cool. And uh, best of luck to you too, Cecil. With uh, I know you're also in several different directions. But uh, I hope the uh, the voiceover and the things that you're doing now, you're successful. And I believe you will be because you're a good person. You're a good trusting person that somebody can deal with. And uh, I, I believe when you put that good karma out like you are, um, you're going to have good success. Hey, and the same to you, man. Thank you very much, Rico. I'll let you, let you get out of here and uh, get out of the office and, and get home. All right. Thanks, Cecil. Good talking to you. All right, Rico. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Bye. All right, that's it. Cecil's Unknown Achievers, episode one is a wrap. My thanks to Rico Bertoletti for spending the time. If you want to reach out to Rico's Repair Service, you can visit their website at ricosrepairservice.com. That's R-I-C-C-O-S, repairservice.com. Or give them a call at 708-248-6354. Until next time, this is Cecil Archbold Jr. with Cecil's Unknown Achievers.